Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Kleber, your host, and with me today is just your other co-host, Wai Lu. Hey, Wai. How you doing today? Hey, Wai. I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, we actually have a three-day weekend where I'm at. I don't think you do. No, what the what what holiday is it? <laughs> it's it's Labor Day as we record here. So huh. Monday, I've got Monday off. So three-day weekend. Okay. The weather's supposed to be uh, like 95 degrees today, which is really hot for for September here. Sweet, yeah, nice. It's getting warm here though, actually. So yeah. yeah, you're you're just moving into get ready for spring. I think it's September. Is spring? That's yeah, that's, yeah. So started spring now. I think so. Okay. All right. Cool. All right. Our guest today, straight from Kentucky, is David Duruf. Hey, David. Hi, guys. <laughs> Hi, how you doing? Good. Good. Glad to have awesome. you. Thanks show. for having me. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Do you ever have trouble just getting into the flow? You find that your tool is great, like Visual Studio, but you could just get more out of it or get some stuff out of your way or have it give you better feedback that you would be able to get into flow easier. Well, let me tell you about Code Rush. Code Rush actually solves this problem for you. So the first thing that it does is it actually gives you a visualizer on the way that the code is set up and it actually helps you debug stuff in an intuitive way that makes it easy for you to figure out what's going on. This really helps me stay in the flow when I'm trying to write code. Another thing that it does is it has a whole bunch of navigation options that you can get used to. Now, this is something that I figured out with Emacs was something that I really got into. So when I started using Emacs, just the key bindings and, and kind of the natural flow of things made me a much, much more efficient programmer. And the quick navigation in Code Rush is awesome. You should definitely try it out. They have code analysis, so they'll pick out some of the issues maybe for complexity or diagnose some other code issues. It'll point out code smells. It'll help you refactor your code. So the code analysis is another thing where I don't have to actually go in and sit down and think, okay, have I made any mistakes in this code? Because it actually highlights them. And finally, it just validates like your code coverage and all of the other things that you're trying to look at and gives you real numbers and real feedback on the quality of your coding and the quality of your tests. So go check out Code Rush. You can get it at devexpress.com slash products slash Code Rush, or just go to devchat.tv slash Code Rush, and it'll send you to the right place. Once again, that's devchat.tv slash Code Rush. So I think first, before we get started, why don't you tell us and the listeners a little bit about yourself, you know, what you do, how you get started in development and .NET? Sure. So back, way back in the day, longer than I'm going to admit, way back in the day, you know, technology has just kind of been in my blood. I, I got started a long time ago. So my best friend and I were big into jets, right? And at that time, we were thinking about, we wanted to fly jets. We were dreaming. There was a game that we found that you could install on two computers, PCs, and network them together. You can't see it, but I'm quoting, network them together over serial. And you could fly against one another, dogfight. Uh, but it turns out that like the sound card and all that stuff, you had to set up all the jumpers, you know, you had to break open the machine and get everything right. We did it. We got it to work. And to tell you the truth, like that, between that and for some reason, databasing for me, like that did it. That just kind of drew me in. And so I was very young then. And then uh, very early on into the .NET space, the databasing, like classic ASP and access database. 
like writing a website that picked data out of a database. I changed it. I put it back in. I mean, that just blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember doing the same thing, you know, with access and active server pages, you know, moving and right before that, just dealing with flat files is what I dealt with before that. Uh, so yeah. yeah, being able to actually have a, have a real database was, was, was so nice. And it, it just kind of happened. I ended up, my dad at his work got me a Windows 3.1 machine. Uh, there was like a, I guess, a 46, possibly 386. And it was just on from there. I think, uh, it's, I think it's funny how like when you're, when you're little, features are like really kind of impress you. I think for me, it was like, it was, it was the internet, actually. I think I, I, I was one of the first people, actually, well, that I knew actually that got a 33 K modem or something like that. Oh, um, 33, 6 K yeah. modem. I remember that. And I, and I remember like logging into like BS, BBSs, I think bulletin oh, boards, yeah, they were yeah. called. And yeah, being able to type and see what, be able to communicate with other people, it was just like, it was just revolutionary for me, you know? Like, um, yeah. So, you know, guys, I am so old. I am so old. You know, you talk about 33K. <laughs> I started out 300 baud. You know, then then the big jump to 1200 baud. It was like, whoa. Yeah. That was, you reminded me of like the days of what, well, around here at least it was Compu, CompuServe. CompuServe, yeah. And then it was AOL dialing in, you know, on AOL. And, uh, and you know, my mom would pick up the phone. It's like, I'm on the internet. You just yeah. got my connection. <laughs> like ICQ. here in the city, you got all these like CDs from AOL where you get, we gave you like 60 days free or oh, something yeah. like that. Pick it off. Yeah. yeah. Every week you get one. <laughs> and I, I think I they're like, still around, yeah? Are they still around? I'm pretty I sure. I think like, they are. Like my, uh, in fact, my my wife's parents, they turned up with an AOL address. And I, <laughs> I just like learned it the other day. Like, like an email or something, yeah. Still works, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but that like, yeah. And, and like learning about NFTP and then being able to take your HTML and, you know, put it up there. And it's like, I got my website you know, yeah. out there and all that. Like, yeah, man, that was a lot of fun. Good old days. Yeah, I remember <laughs> seeing my first, you know, in a book, in a magazine somewhere, HTTP colon slash slash some something. Went, What's that for? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no clue. I've never seen that before. Yeah. So, so it was, uh, that was, uh, for me, that was the beginning of it. And then it just kind of grew and grew. I, um, I took a bit of a detour in my, what would have been my college years. So like, this is, this is a good moment. I drop out of college. I moved to San Diego because that's what you do when you move out of college, drop out of college. I could write code. So got a job doing some shady things for cash, writing code for search engines and hacking search engines and such. This is before the days of Google. This is when metadata was like, you know, the thing. Yeah. Kind of worked my way up a little bit over the years, couple of years. Then the bubble burst. And you're in Southern California when the bubble burst. And like, dude, like Wednesday, you're at work. Thursday, your development team's sitting on the beach because everybody's fired, right? It's just done. Mm. And so at that, that time, I said, I'm going to do what I've always wanted to do. And there were, there were kind of two interests in my life, computers and cars. I could take apart a car like nobody's business. My dad taught me and I could write some code pretty darn good. So I got a job on a race team. And started building race cars. Wow. Had to stretch my open resume wheel a little or, bit. <laughs> was it open wheel or what class? Yeah, yeah, it was. So I started out in, um, uh, it, was, it, was, it was all in America. 
in uh, a uh, open wheel series called Formula Atlantic. Toyota well, Atlantic. boss used to race that. And then, so that's kind of the minor league to the big cars at the time was Champ Car. That was where you aspired. So I did that for a couple of years, moved up to the big cars and the Champ Car. Champ Car and Indy Car, well, they didn't join. One bought the other, really. And so I switched over to sports cars and did like Le Mans type cars in the, the America Le Mans series and um, got into endurance racing and all that stuff. So anyway, that like that was it, it's weird because that was a turn, you know, towards like nothing but hardware, you would say, because my job on the team was all the sensors, all the wiring, making some of it, maintaining it, the radios on the car, the telemetry off the car, building the timing stand you know, analyzing some of the data, rough or very, very light uh, analysis of data, you know, you're just engulfed, right, in technology and like the bare bones of technology and squeezing every possible moment you can out of it doing that. It's so much fun. It's so hard. Uh, so you so got moved fun. back. Somehow you got moved back to programming? To tell you the truth, like I was always, I was always dead set, even working, you know, getting into hardware and learning about the sensors and, you know, taking digital or uh, analog data off sensors, bringing them into a CAN bus and then, you know, storing them on a computer, all that stuff. I was always trying to write code to do something. And as you got into the more advanced systems, like we, we built this ALMS car that we inherited the data system from the Honda Formula One team, because it was a Honda chassis, it was a Honda engine actually. And, and so the Formula One team had folded. And so they sent us all the boxes of their stuff because Honda was all about the Salem S car. And I got a really sweet McLaren system for the, for the car. And they kind of let me go. And it had an API. And uh, oh my gosh, I had a lot of fun. Writing code, doing analysis, crunching data, just you know, doing all kinds of fun little things for you know, looking at trends in the data, popping up messages, looking at tire pressure sensors and watching for, you know, trying to automate things like that. So like the code piece for me, it's always been there. What language was this? C Sharp. Oh. Huh. Somewhat surprisingly, probably, because that was like .NET framework, but it was totally C Sharp. Yeah. So we just have a computer inside the car, would it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's the thing. Like the, the you know, you, it, it, well, in a race car, even in a street car, you know, you, you obviously have the, the physical aspects of a driver and the mechanics, you know, setting up the car, setting up the geometry, the aerodynamics, you know, obviously those are all very physical things on the car. Then you put a sensor on just about everything or, or as much as the series will allow you to, to put on the car. And the trick is taking the sensor data, getting the sensor data off, getting it, you know, clean in a good place and then being able to combine it together use your analysis software to combine it together to actually say, you know, based on what all of these load sensors, these wheel speeds, the, the bars, the, the load on the bars, put all that together in a trace and find the understeer, the oversteer in the car, you know, and really good engineers can do stuff like that. So it's like writing software to try to help you zero in on those moments and find those things very quickly is invaluable. A very, I never could get it, mm. but this, obviously, this is this is just begging for machine learning here. <laughs> Some like big data kinds of things. Anyway, it's that the, yeah. the race car world. It, it was so much fun. I loved it, but unfortunately, I um, I moved. Not unfortunately, but I moved on because the tough thing is 
a team usually lasts about five years. And then you're either going to move to another team or find some sort of fly-in job to do or something like that. And you do that a couple of times and it just gets old. And I was getting old. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, that's... Right. Um, so when yeah. did you actually, you know, start having, you know, development as a career? You know, actually oh, uh, hardcore development. It's, it's been a long time. The funny... The, so like, the thing is, until... So after I left racing and I went to, I actually just consulted locally for a while. Uh, that was definitely hardcore programming, uh, consulting and all that. Then I, I got a job at Pivotal. And Pivotal was the largest company I'd ever worked for. At the time, it was about 2,000 people. And that was like enterprise to me. But then at Pivotal, I was introduced to you know Fortune 50 companies. That's pretty much all we worked with was Fortune 50 companies. And it was like, a shock, right? So like when you say hardcore development, I have all these things flash in my head because I'm like, I'm thinking of all those folks that I I talk to even today in those Fortune 50 companies that just live, eat, sleep, and breathe all these applications. And then I think about the startups, right? That are like on the cutting edge trying to do all the super awesome right now Kubernetes stuff and, uh, you know, really trying to push the limits in automation and, and code first and all that. And it's like, I've always had my hand in that some way. It's just a question of whether I understood like the proper name for it or not, right? But I've always kind of just, it's just kind of come to me. And where do you work out now? Uh, So Pivotal was acquired by VMware at the beginning of this year, 2020. So we, uh, they started a new line of uh, business at VMware called Tanzu. So that is basically what Pivotal was with application development with a application platform, cloud-based application platform using Cloud Foundry and then we're moving to, uh, very quickly to Kubernetes focus. You know, I'm just in the middle of all that. I'm a bit of a, uh, I guess, a developer advocate is the correct word these days. I guess it was DevOps for a while, but now it's changed developer advocate. So anything to do with .NET on our platform, modern applications using .NET, Windows is still in there, but quite honestly, it's kind of going away for me a little bit. That's my focus today. Yeah, I think some people might be surprised to to learn that VMware has .NET, you know, in some of their applications. You know, I don't you know, think they're primarily a .NET product, right? No, no, oh no. But but now, see, that's the thing. Like VMware, I'm sure when you guys think of VMware, you think of infrastructure, right? You think of VMs, right, and that sort of thing, and so. That the 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 roots of the company doing infrastructure and virtualizing hardware and that sort of thing, they have a very heavy base of Windows there. A lot of customers running Windows, but those are like Windows desktops, right? Virtual Windows desktops and that kind of stuff. The Windows application servers, they they still have a heck of a lot of that as well. Our focus is we're actually bringing an entirely new dynamic to VMware. Because imagine a world where not only they're so good at doing infrastructure and virtual machines and such, but they also are good at running uh, like Kubernetes clusters, which then opens the door to let's talk to developers, right? Infrastructure is almost, well, it's not secondary, but it's a separate conversation. And it's been abstracted so well with Kubernetes, like let's just talk about how you're going to gear applications to production, right? And that's, it's a shift for VMware. It's a very new shift for VMware, but one that that is becoming more and more natural. 
All right. So I think our, our main topic for today, we're, we're going to cover microservices. So how'd you get into microservices? Or let's first start way at the beginning, because we've had a few episodes that have kind of touched on microservices, but it's still you know, kind of fuzzy in a lot of people's minds. What is a microservice? When, when do you call it a microservice? And when is it not a microservice? So let's start yeah. there. Okay. And actually, let's, you know what, let's try to do a use case here. Right, because I, I could try to describe all these, you know, abstract and nebulous kinds of things, but let's just take a use case of payment processing, right? A payment processing system. This one is top of mind because it's a project that I'm helping out with. So you have in, in um, it, it's actually somewhat modern, but let's say you have this payment processing system where you have merchants that. They process payments, right? They take customers' credit card numbers and process payments. Then they have, you know, customers, payers, and then you have a transaction engine in there. So in like .NET Framework, you're going to build all this. It's going to be probably either one large solution with a couple of projects in there, but it's going to be pretty tightly coupled, all of these different projects, right? And when you want to go to deliver, when you want to go to deploy something, it's going to be basically one large DLL or maybe a couple of DLLs that are really tightly coupled to one another, right? As you can imagine, deployment, going to production and things, it's an event doing something like that because you're basically republishing the entire application every time, right? That's the, the monolith side of things. So we want to take this and we want to break this apart, right? And we want to make this, the reason we want to break it apart is because we need to be able to iterate on these individual things without making production such an event. We want to be able to put in little features here and there, publish those little features, and not affect anything else. Now, in doing that, so this is the shift from a monolith to a microservice. In doing that, I'm going to take two assumptions here. One is microservices is harder, is, is harder to do than like a monolith, meaning if I want to do a monolithic application, I can have it in one Visual Studio and I can kind of do my whole thing, right? Develop everything. I've got connections between projects. If I change something here, my squiggly lines are going to show up in my other project because Visual Studio is going to tell me I've made some bad mistake there or whatever. It's, it's pretty intuitive, you know? When you move to microservices, they're decoupled from one another. They don't know about one another, like, you know, sitting in Visual Studio or something. So if you make a change over here, you could easily break something over there. And you have a bunch of projects, a bunch of things out there that you have to maintain, right? Not just this one thing. So it's harder. The second thing is we are now going to connect all these applications over the wire. So we need a really great network here, right? Because we're about to add double, triple our traffic on the network by these all these microservices running independently, all right? So we'll, we'll, we'll understand those two things. So our payment processing uh, system, we're going to break it apart into microservices. So first, we're going to say, we're going to do a domain exercise here, right? And we're going to say, what matters to the business? Process, being able to sign on merchants, the merchants being able to track their customer information and their customer payments, and being able to trans process payments. Those are kind of the, the three big ones there. So those are our domains. So that's actually going to become our microservices, right? We're going to have three here. The, the merchant side of it, we're going to create a microservice where you can do everything. We're going to take 
the tables in the database that have to do with merchants, and we're going to break them out of the database and create our own little database. And, and we're going to call it the, the member one, right? All right. So the, so the boundary of a microservice isn't as, as far down as like each endpoint to an API. It's going to be all those API endpoints that are grouped together for like a single responsibility. A responsibility is a good word to use there because the thing is when you're going to microservices, assuming we're going to do this right, because I've seen a lot of bad decisions out there, you know, thinking of microservice is going to be a single table of a database, right? That's, that's the correlation that you're going to do, things like that, bad idea. Because when you go to microservices, if you're going to do it right, you're going to involve the business, right? It's not just going to be developers sitting at the table saying, here's how we're going to design this thing. You're going to bring in the business and they're going to sit on the other side of the table and you're going to create, you're going to have a language, right? It's like, as I'm talking to my, my business counterpart and I say customer, it means the same thing to them that it does to me. Or in the payment world, when I say like a payment gateway or a transaction, in the programming world, a transaction can mean 50 different things, right? But to a business person that's not technical and you say transaction, what does it mean to them? Is the right word payment instead of transaction, right? So it's that kind of deal. It's that kind of dynamic. That is your domain. Is that that entity of work, that responsibility? That is your microservice. So it sounds like then that I'm, I'm just trying to visualize that example. So it sounds like each microservice is almost like it's its own application with its own data layer and its own mm-hmm. domain. Yep. Okay. And so, so that that like we've just gone through this 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 uh, development team that I'm working with. I, I really wanted to get like deep hands on with these guys because they're it's just you know I enjoy doing it. I want to help them get to some modern places, and I'm learning a lot along the way. And so one of the things is consider a merchant has an address, right? And a customer has an address as well. So there's one address table in the database that's holding all this information. But when you break these things apart, what do you do? Because both of them need to know about address. But if you create some utility, like utility project that both of them are using, utility... DLL package, sorry, that both of them are using. Whenever you update that utility package, they have to redeploy. And everybody else that's using that utility, bad idea, right? The microservice needs to be within its domain, is the right words, or completely encompassed in its own thing. Mm. So it's okay. Both of them might have a different definition of what an address is. One of them might care about two lines of address and a city, state, and a region, and longitude and latitude and other things. And one might only care about, you know, little bits and pieces, a zip code and, an ad, you know, line one of the address and a city and state. So both of them hold address, but they have different meanings about what a, an address really is. So kind of a duplication there, yeah. So would they share that database table or just each microservice get its own data layer and... Yeah, so this is, uh, so we're very much entering, you know, the specific use case kind of realm here, right? Because if you're reading a book about microservices and things, this is where it would get really generic and not really answer you (laughs) because it's going to be very specific to your situation. I will say in this situation, everything there, the direction that we're going right now, and I'm, I'm, I'm feeling this out a little bit, but the direction we're going right now is, We've, we've introduced the notion of models and DTOs, right? 
the the data data transaction operations DTOs DTOs. Uh, we've introduced the notion of both of those. What your DTO you own the table of that information in the database, right? So you maybe own the address table in the database. The other one has a model of an address because you don't actually own the table in the database, but you need to know what an address is. You need to have a definition of what the address is in there. So it it gets messy there, I will admit, right? And you kind of have to feel out the right way to do that. But this goes back to also like, and it's classic, in a classic microservice, every microservice has their own database and grouping of tables, relationships of tables, and nobody else ever accesses those tables but that microservice. If you want to learn about an address, you've got to go to that microservice and get the information out. So in that respect, everybody would have their own address table. Is that making sense? So would the, would the architecture of each microservice be pretty much the same as just a normal application, like with a with a you know, web layer, maybe a business layer. Layers, all that stuff, sure. Yeah. Okay. So it's just basically different applications communicating with each other then. Now, typically though, in a microservice, you're never going to have a UI, right? API is the the interface. A microservice, at least to me, a microservice is an API. Your UI, so the UI is going to encompass, you know, all these domains, right? Because that's the, the accumulation of, I want to now create a product and an interface to do this product. And so it's going to talk to all these different microservices, all these different APIs to gain the information and then display it up mm. to somebody. That's making sense. Yeah. It's making more sense to me, actually. So, yeah. <laughs> so I'm thinking to put together, you know, a, a set of microservices in Visual Studio. You, would, you could do it with each one's its own little project as long as you don't reference, make any references from one project to another. Is that right? Yeah, so this is where this is where you're going to make some really bad mistakes and you're going to make really bad choices, really, should I say. Oh, no. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Your interconnectivity between the two. I'm going to try to profess what I believe are the right ways. And that is you're going to create packages and you're going to distribute those packages over some system. If you're using it like privately, Azure DevOps has a very nice artifact distribution, artifact repository. It's NuGet-based, right, and all that. You can use NuGet straight up to privately, I'm pretty sure you can use it privately or publicly if you want. But yeah, your microservice is actually going to be, actually, for me, a microservice is a project in an overall solution. And the solution has the API microservice, has a unit test, and has an integration test project within. That's the bare minimum for me. And then the solution encompasses all of that and the API bit of that, the DLL out of there, that's your distributable uh, for you know others to use. But remember, over an API, over a microservice, you're connecting to it uh, over HTTP, right? You're not bringing that DLL into some other application. That's a no-no. It lives on its own. It's it's distributed on its own. It's running out there in its own container, and it has a web server on it. And it is available over HTTP for you to connect to and look up information. Okay. So like in the IIS world, every DLL or app microservice would be in its own application pool. Yeah. You totally just aged yourself right there. You totally. <laughs> <laughs> well. Because uh, to tell you the truth, like that, that 
I, talking of IAS, much less talking of application pools, is just gone. Like, well, there's just still a lot of people that work in that world, including I, yeah, me yeah. on some of those projects. So we got <laughs> we got to talk about it. Totally. But <laughs> now, to me, my application. So, like, I'm I'm you know I've I moved to .NET Core, right? Uh, we have to uh, uh, make that clear. I moved to .NET Core. .NET Core, each application has its own web server built in, has its own Kestrel server built in, and it's within a container, right? So what you would have with IAS and pooling, now I have with Kestrel, my own web server, and, and containers running out there. And then my containers, you know, run in some platform and so on and so forth. Yep. So it's the you know there's the old kind of way of doing things very rigid right when you get into IAS when you run many sites or or many services and things in IAS very very uh, we always have the term of cattle versus pets and an IAS server is a pet you love it right you 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 customize it it's yours i don't know if i say it, i love it <laughs> well yeah <laughs> You have to, you have to, you have to. So like that thing, it means so much to you, right? And and really, I would say that's a problem because if you're terrified of ever restarting that, that pet or, you know, updating uh, the operating system or something, that's a problem. You have a very, very rigid system and you cannot move with the times, right? It's holding you back. Uh, but if you move over to this, you know, self-contained, containerized kind of place, uh, instantly, I don't care about any of that stuff, right? The operating system just needs to run containers. You update that operating system anytime you want. I don't care. It has no web server on it. It just, I just need to be able to run containers on it. And my container is self-contained. It is running some version of .NET within. I control that. All the packages, how IS is configured is running totally contained. So I don't care about the operating system anymore. So that's why microservices and containers, like you're almost always going to hear them talk together, right? That's just peanut butter and jelly there. Okay, so it sounds like there's all sorts of good things for microservices, but there's got to be some bad things. What are kind of the most common challenges that somebody would run to when they're trying to get to a microservice architecture? I mean, no doubt the first one is they're hard, right? I mean, imagine you have all these different projects now, all these different solutions. Each one has their own unit tests, their own integration tests. This gets unruly because you've got a lot going on. You have two different definitions of address. Now, microservices are, are easier when you have many development teams because you know they're just worrying about a single microservice. But if you have a smaller development team, which is probably the reality of a lot of us, you're maintaining multiple microservices. And so you always got to keep that context, that that boundary uh, of which microservice I'm working on. And that's hard doing that. So that's the first thing for sure, the reality there of moving to microservices. I would I would say though the benefits of doing that versus the overhead and maybe a little bit of debt that you're taking on uh, for moving to microservices, the benefits outweigh the negatives there. So at what, po- what point um, in the size of your project then do you do you decide to, to adopt a microservice route then, you think? It sounds like for small yeah. projects, you probably don't want to do that. Would that be yeah, true? Yeah, that, that's, that's a really good point because as you read headlines today 
and you know you're just you, you just hear developer advocates and things they're always talking about microservices and going to containers and that sort of thing and it kind of indirectly makes you feel like your monolithic application is wrong and you shouldn't be doing that and that is not the case right this is a decision this is a technical decision of really it's uh, i'm sorry it's it's a business and technical decision right do I need to have my system in a place where I can iterate on these little pieces very quickly and go to, de- go to production with these little pieces very quickly? Will that give me a business advantage? If the answer is yes, then you probably need to be looking at microservices and not you know, just single deployment monolithic applications. If the answer is no, it's like this application is what it is and we don't really get many features for it, it just runs, there's no reason for us to really iterate on it too much, then don't break it apart, right? You're fine. It's just like if the business is on you to, to you know, add new features and, and really, you know, move with the times or the technology is just really causing you to hold on to server 2008 or something like that, yeah, that, that, that helps you make the decision. But it's worth calling out, like a model of the application is not wrong by any means. Yeah, because I thought that, I guess before we started today, that uh, taking uh, an Azure function, okay, you develop a, an, an application using Azure function, each each one of those Azure functions would be its own microservices. But it sounds like a microservice is actually a, a little bit bigger than that. It's its yep, own application, exactly. essentially. Yep. You're, uh, don't blur the lines between what a, like a cloud flunk function is and what a microservice is they on the outside they could feel like the same thing they're not one is very granular and one is a little less granular than the other but on the on the scale of things you know granular up to just grand a function very very specific job right scale to zero kinds of things i just want to do this thing really well and very efficiently then you move up to a microservice and it's like I've got this domain of things that I need to do really well, but there are a couple of things that I need to do well. And then up to a monolith where it's like, I'm doing everything, hopefully really well for it. So kind of different levels there. The, the, the function thing, like honestly, I don't run into a lot of enterprises that are doing any sort of production functions, cloud functions kind of stuff right now. It's just, it's a lot of talk. It's very cool. There's definitely, you know, enterprises and, and definitely folks using them and using them well, right? They have a great, Lambda is a very, very popular feature I know of AWS. But in the grand scheme of things, functions are just so specific that it's like, I don't know, the adoption of it maybe needs a little more time or something. Hey, folks, one of the things that I find that really makes a difference for people being happy in their job is working in a place that makes a difference. And there's a terrific company out there that's looking to hire full stack developer just like you. And that's Faith Life. Their average tenure is five years. I mean, five years, that's forever in developer years. Usually I see people changing jobs every one to two years. People are sticking around because they're great. They have a great values-based culture and they are hiring developers in the United States. They're looking for full-stack developers who can do C-sharp or JavaScript on the back end and React on the front end. Go check them out at devchat.tv slash faithlife. That's devchat.tv slash faithlife. So do you have some suggestions or recommendations on how to you know, migrate or move from a monolithic application to microservice? Carefully. 
that's my that's my suggestion. <laughs> now, where do you uh, start? Where do you start? Like seriously, I'm I'm, you know, I've done. I've done some some webinars and some talks. Some of my coworkers have done some really good talks about this, but I am right now just kind of kind of force myself a little bit to get hands on and do this. And this is it's just so complicated because all the decisions, your 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 journey of taking a monolith to microservices, your journey there has so many potential places for bad decisions. And you don't even realize it, right? And there's so much learning that you have to do to figure out whether that thing is good for you or not. You know, when you get along this, you start reading about event-driven stuff and using a message bus. Is that right for me? Is that, you know, is that good or is that bad? And you have to, you have to really disconnect your, your technologist side because it's like, oh, an event bus would be really cool. Like that would be a lot of fun to implement. You can't look at it that way. It's like, yes but is this going to be good for the business, right? That's the reason this application exists, to make money, to do something for the business. Is that right? To use this technology, will this give me some edge? Maybe yes, maybe no. Then there's like decisions about like, okay, Microsoft with .NET Core, and you know, we're moving on to .NET 5, has introduced officially the notion of long-term support releases. They haven't really done this before in .NET Framework which made life very difficult to stay up to date with things. But now they have the notion of long-term releases. And so that makes you like, am I going to choose to only follow long-term releases here? So .NET Core 3.1 is going to be it. And then in a year from now, .NET 6 will be a release. But in between there, there's going to be other releases with cool little fun things, but we're not going to care about those. So now I'm saying that, look, I'm going to go to microservices. Every microservice is going to use .NET Core 3.1. And not until .NET 3. Sorry, not until .NET 6 am I going to have to update all of these microservices and get them all out to production. So it's like along the way, there are just so many small and big decisions that you have to make. And they're so specific to what you're doing that it's, it's hard to do. I, 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 yeah, I wish you could just pick up a book and say like, monolith to microservices, here's the formula, follow this. And what you, I think, would see is I need somebody that's done this before because there's a lot of questions that I have along the way. So it sounds like it's, it's hard. So maybe the first thing to do is to find a, a use case. But maybe if, if you... If a company does decide to go down the route of using microservices, possibly maybe if it, if they're building a new module or something, a new piece of functionality, it might be good to make that into a, as, a, as a starting step to make that into a microservice instead of ripping apart their existing application. Would you Would you agree? You think starting small? Yes, absolutely. Because the so the other side of this that we don't have to go really far with this, but. This is also very, very relevant in my world, talking to these large companies and these large developer teams, and that is a change in culture, right? Because going to this type of of architecture of microservices, this is going to change the way you work. You have been doing monolithic waterfall kind of development, maybe some agile stuff in there and all that for years. And now we're going to go from potentially a project-based mentality within the entire company 
right? You're going to go from a project-based thing where it's like, I make this thing that the business wants, I throw it over the wall to some other team, they support it in production, I move on with life, right? To a product-based thing where I own this thing for the life of it, right? It is mine. And that's a, that's a pretty big change, right? So microservices along the way, like there's start small, understand what you're working with, get you and others around you comfortable in this new way of doing things because it's going to be a journey for sure. So is it, is it really best to use the container type of architecture or, or you know, not? No, yeah, w- without a doubt. If you're going to go to microservices, you're going to go to containers. And so this, now we're going to get into, as our journey of discussion of microservices goes here, now you're going to get into your platform. And what are, where am I going to run this thing, right? How am I going to do that? And so from a developer's point of view, if we do this correctly, all the developer cares about is my application needs to run in a container and expect these things to be fed to it, like my connection string or configuration values or something like that, right? I'm going to expect these things to be fed to my container. My application can run. It's pretty resilient in its container. And then where the container is running is really less of a thing right? The Docker has kind of become the the Kleenex of containers, right? It's technically a tissue, but (laughs) Docker has become the the Kleenex of uh, containers, right? If you really want to be like technical, you're going to say it's an OCI compliant container. That is the spec that everybody follows for. That is a Docker container though, it's an OCI compliant. So your Docker container, but your, your Kleenex, where it runs whether you're going to go to, whether you're going to go to a Kubernetes cluster or you're going to go to an EC2 instance, you're going to use like Elastic Beanstalk or something, or you're going to go to Azure Container Service or, or other Azure type containerized services, things like that. Like that doesn't matter to you because all of these things will run a Docker container, right? That's what I need to be worried about as a developer is can I run in a Docker container and hear the things that I need to be able to run correctly? So as you get into the platform side of things, you know, hopefully you have other, hopefully other like platform teams that are next to you or around your team to help you or really just aid you and say, here's what you have. Here's what we've chosen to work with. Get your app to a container and deploy it here. Right. But there's kind of a line of separation there sometimes. For it. Is that answer? Is that helping? Yeah, I th- definitely that does help. And I hope that helps our, our audience as well. You're also involved with a product called Steel Toe. How does yes. that fit into microservices? All right. <laughs> Funny because that's kind of a natural progression there. So when you I, create... I do this for a living. Awesome. Well, thank you. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, probably a good thing I don't. When so when you're moving into a container world, you are going to be hit with a couple of hard realities here. And I'm talking about as a developer and what my habits as a developer have been. And what I'm really going for is debugging more than anything, right? Getting to your logs. Traditionally, you've had IIS logs, you've had the event logs, probably written written to some file. Your application, 
maybe writing some logs to a database, maybe logging logging to some you know local file on that VM, something like that. Like that, that was life for a long time. When you go to a container, when you go to a microservice running in a container that is then running on some platform, you don't get any of that. You don't get access to anything. IAS does not exist in your world. I'm speaking. Yeah, you can't really, can you really attach, you know, like Visual Studio to debug onto this? No. Actually, well, in in some odd ways you can, they're a bit unnatural, but but you can, but yeah, your your thinking is going the right direction there. Like I, I, my life needs to change here and the way I do things needs to change because as I write logs, I don't have a disk anymore. That disk may or may not be there when my instance, my container gets killed and spun up somewhere else, right? And and I don't know where it could be at any moment. So I need to be able to aggregate my logs elsewhere if I'm going to be able to debug things, right? And it, as I as my application runs, I, I the uh, performance of my application. So like this becomes a big deal. If you're running an application on IIS on a web on a Windows server. Have you ever cared how much memory it actually takes to run that application? Or like when you fill up all your variables, have you ever really cared how much it takes? Probably not. Or, you know, you've never really spent the time to do some hard math there for it. Or how much CPU it's using or things like that. Like, that, eh, whatever. It's like... Right, right. Not, not until it becomes a problem. That's only, I, yeah. that's the only time I think about it. Yeah. You know, network latency and things like that. That's more of an issue, but still, like, you haven't spent a lot of time on that. Now, your currency here is memory when you go to a container. Because when you spin up that container, one of the hard values you're going to have to provide is how much memory am I going to give that container? And you can't go over it because you're going to die if you go over it. The container is getting killed if you go over it. That's, that's just the way life is. But the thing is, a single application does have a finite amount of memory that it needs. But how do you figure that out? Right? How could you possibly, you know, figure out what that real number is? That's an art to do, by all means. But anyway, when you're going to this world of containers, these are the things that you need to start thinking about, right? And they're very different from possibly your traditional world that you've been doing. So, steel toe, steel toe was was really born out of two needs. One is the Spring Framework for Java developers, and more importantly, within the Spring Framework called Spring Cloud. There are some really cool things going on there. And I, I, I will be the first to admit that the Java world is eons ahead of us in the .NET world for containers, like really a lot of years ahead of us for that. And the Linux operating system, of course, too, way ahead of us for this. So, you know, I'm not going to fight that by any means. The Spring Framework, Spring Cloud, they've been doing this for a lot longer and they're doing it pretty good. They've learned a lot along the way. And so at the time at Pivotal, we said, well, we want to do this in .NET. We want to use some of these spring components in .NET. And also, as we're containerizing our .NET applications, there's some boilerplate stuff going on here that every single microservice has to have because you're running in this container now. And so the, the Steel Toe project was born out of that. That was in like 2015, something like that. So the boilerplate stuff. Okay, my logs can no longer be written. They need to be streamed out which in my world means console.write, that's streaming logs. You're gonna, console.write is going to standard out. Docker is going to see that, capture that, and forward that on 
to the logs of the container. And then the platform running that container is going to see it and forward it on to your chosen log aggregator, Splunk, or you know whatever you have to your to your Grafana database or uh, Prometheus database or or whatever out there, right? But the idea is your logs are being streamed out of your application and put somewhere safe because your container may or may not be there in the next minute. Health. Your application needs to be able to report its health somehow to the platform because they need to kind of agree that things are running okay. Just saying that the process is running, like, okay, the container's running, and within it, my process is running. That's not enough it could very well be dead, right? And just a zombie process running there. So in fact, I need an endpoint in my API, slash health. And that slash health, if it responds with an HTTP status of 200 and possibly some other deeper information in the, in the payload of the response, that is truly healthy, right? And to get to that 200, actually a lot of decisions were made. Is my database available? Is my API running? Are these things here? Are these things here? And that's the accumulation of that, of that 200 response. So just a couple there. Distributed tracing. Like, I need to see, because now in a microservice world, I'm going to be connecting to a lot of other services around me, a whole lot of them around me. So I need to see how healthy those connections are, and is there a bottleneck for that? So visually show me, here's where the request came in. I connected to this. I connected to this. It connected to the database. And then the response came back and it took this much time to go along the way there to do all those things. And, oh, look at that. The, this microservice is only responding, you know, my overall response time was a second. One second response time for an API is not real good. So we need to find the bottleneck in there and, and do that. It's distributed tracing. Things like that. Like you're going to use them in every single microservice out there. And so Steel Toe uh, was born out of that as just all these packages. Pick and choose whatever you want to do, add them into your .NET application, and you can have all of these things instantly. Very, I mean, really, really very little code because we know what it should look like. So why should you have to sit there and configure all this stuff and add it into every single microservice you have? Just use, add a using statement or something like that, let it hook into everything and go with that. So that's the the boilerplate side of steel toe pro, uh, project so pretty much just you know install it configure it and then it just kind of does its thing yep and that and so that that kind of pattern was born out of the spring way of doing things because spring like spring cloud applications in java the idea is using attributes so i should just be able to say i'm using a config server i'm using a discovery server i'm doing these things and then in my properties file, I'll tell you how to connect to these servers, but you should do the rest because you already know how to do all that stuff. I shouldn't tell you that. And so in Steel Toe, we're using attributes, right? Annotations in Java, attributes in .NET. Attributes and .NET Core introduced the, a build pipeline or really middleware is the idea here. It's very powerful being able to use middleware and dependency injection and all that. And so let's tap into that. And in fact, you know what? Give me one or two lines and tell me what you want to do. Put your settings and app settings, Jason, and I'll do the rest for you because I know exactly what that looks like already. Yeah, that's the idea. Do you see how... Sorry, I, I'm, I'm going to get on my soapbox for just a minute because I, I, I love you know helping others to just learn a different new technology and such. Are you guys seeing like 
we talked about all the microservices and staying it within a domain, right? And, and creating this API and then putting it in a container and going to the platform and then adding steel toe into it to help your application get better at running on the cloud, right? Because debugging all that different. Do you see the big picture? Like all this is working together, right? Oh yeah, I'm definitely saying the, the big picture much much better now. Are you why? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it sounds like from what you were saying that steel toe, well, with cloud, so with, um, with, with containers, there's a bunch of fairly common problems that you have, such as logging and, and things like that. And steel toe allows you to essentially solve those problems by putting it into, into this by putting it into the startup file of a normal application More and calling yeah. it before you before it runs. Would that would that be true? Like if and you can do it just by a couple of lines. Yeah. And actually so you're you're exactly correct. And they take it a little bit further and say, look, all of this needs to be open source because some want to use packages in different ways than others. And some need to extend this stuff. So Steel Toe is 100% and has always been open source project. There is there's nothing proprietary. The project was donated to the .NET Foundation years ago. So it's, it's not really you know, owned by any one commercial entity or anything. So it is completely open source. It is for developers, by developers. VMware employs one of the largest contributing teams to Steel Toe because VMware, as we talked before, as VMware gets into this application world and, you know, is going on its own journey for supporting applications as well as supports infrastructure, you know, they want to be a part of that. They want to help that out for it. So anyway, the um, Sealtoe project's totally open source and totally, totally extensible. That's the big thing. Like you're not logged into there's packages, you know, that's, that's, that's not going to help anybody. If you're just locked into some 30 third-party software that's going to tell you this is where you do it, and you're only going to move when we move, that's just not the world we live in now. So you can do whatever you want. Does Steel Toe work on any platform? So Steel Toe, as I said before, you know, if you got a project started in 2015 for .NET, you didn't know much about .NET Core at that time. You were doing .NET Framework, and in fact, you were doing because you're on .NET Framework, you're also looking at Windows containers. Windows containers at that time was rough, really rough. So that's where SealToe got started. And in fact, in its, its first major version and second major version, it supported .NET Framework applications on Windows, doing all these cool boilerplate things, as well as being able to interact with Spring Cloud components and all of that. That was a pretty big feat, doing all of that. Containerizing .NET Framework is, is a whole story in itself. Now, you know, the .NET world is moving to Linux. And so, so has the Steel Toe project. And so a little bit of 2.0 embraced .NET Core, but it's really meant for .NET Framework. 3.0, which just got released about two weeks ago as of our recording date here, that is solely .NET Core on Linux for it. So in the .NET world, it's like you're, you, you're being pulled back and forth, right? Where you're going to run this thing because, you know, you've got decisions to make there, much like the monolith deal. But as far as Steel Toe is concerned, ultimately your app's going to be running a container. Steel Toe, quite frankly, doesn't care what the operating system is for it. Just run it in a container and you know do the right thing. So 3.0 just came out. What's kind of coming next down the, in the, the pipeline for Steel Toe? So one of the big things that was introduced in 3.0 is a component called Steel Toe Messaging. So 
when we were talking about our microservices and we were, we were talking about what kind of architectures am I choosing here? And that path is fraught with thorny roses and, you know, little elves that are going to stab you. And it's just a rough path going down that monolith to microservices thing. One of the decisions that you're going to make is, am I going to do something event-based for it? Am I going to use a message bus? So my UI is talking to these public, public facing, I'm doing quotes, sorry, public facing APIs, right? That's, that's kind of a straightforward thing. But then those APIs, that's kind of my, my edge surface of my application. Those APIs are going to talk to a bunch of other services. Well, instead of them talking directly to those services, maybe they just put a message on a bus. And some other service is subscribed to that bus to watch for those messages. And when it sees something, then it does something else, right? But you're never really actually connected, one service talking to another service. There's a bus in between there. Okay, this makes perfect sense, right? And some, obviously it gets a bit uh, complicated, but this is a very, very good application using message buses in many instances. Okay, if that's the case, your application needs to be really good at talking to a message bus and getting the absolute most. And when you get into that world, you start getting into custom headers and you start getting into, this is not over HTTP anymore. This is over like AMQP or or using RabbitMQ or something like that. There's a whole Rabbit protocol that happens there. You're beyond HTTP and that kind of stuff. You got to get really good at that stuff. We saw that. It's a bit early in the .NET world for talking about event kind of architecture and stuff because you know, everybody's just getting into the microservice thing and all that. But SteelToe team's trying to stay ahead of that a little bit. And so they introduced messaging. So with SteelToe messaging, and specifically they're talking about RabbitMQ right now, what we're talking about is you should be able to tell your application where your message bus lies, where your RabbitMQ server is, sorry, messaging broker is, and what kind of information you want to serve up on that broker and optionally some other fancy settings and things, and go, right? Because using a message bus, as I've described, it can get involved, right? A lot of code that you could be writing to do all this, make it resilient, make it production ready, and you've never written one line of business logic along the way, and you've taken on a bunch of debt doing that. So the point, the idea with steel till messaging is, in fact, give us, tell us where it is, where your messaging stuff is, what broker you're using, and mark a few of your methods with annotations as being a callback for Rabbit, meaning I want to be notified when this message is put on this bus, and when it is, tell me right here in this function. This is my callback for it. It's literally one annotation to do that. Sorry, attributes to do that uh, backwards there. One attribute to do that, tell it about Rabbit and go. This, like, seriously, when I saw this, when the team demoed this for me, and you know they handed me the, the the code behind it. Whoa, man! I got a whole lot with just a couple lines of code. It was mind blowing. Seeing all that, that was way cool. So that's kind of the next thing is getting into messaging. Then uh, the the messaging is in 3.0 for Rabbit. Obviously, they've opened up an entirely new set of doors for you know supporting other things like Kafka and other messaging uh, software. Also, the, what they're going, where they're going with this is Spring Cloud Dataflow. 
So the idea here is with Spring Cloud Dataflow, this idea with Spring Cloud Dataflow is you build these data pipelines. I need to take some information in, I need to process it and do something with it, and then I need to put it somewhere else, right? This is a very common task to do that. Well, I don't want to build the whole data pipeline to do all this stuff. And that's this project, Spring Cloud Dataflow, is, is born out of that. I just want to write little applications that process data that do these little jobs and things. But the message bus that's being used, everything else that's being done, I don't want anything to do with that. And I want this data pipeline to run on massive amounts of data very, very fast. And I don't really want to deal with all that. And so where they're going with this is they want to be able to, to run Java and .NET applications side by side in the same data pipeline, one talking to another over this thing. But as you can imagine, to do that, to make them that compliant with one another, you got to be really darn good at messaging and that sort of thing. So the messaging thing, quite honestly, is just like it's totally got my gears going because this is so cool what they've done. It's so easy to implement, but they've built it out production ready and it's, it's pretty awesome. Very, very cool. <laughs> yeah, that definitely just sounds really interesting. All right. So, David, is there anything we haven't asked about? either steel toe or microservices that uh, we should know? Gosh, we've covered a lot. If we haven't, yeah, you, we have. you probably, yeah. I, I won't even get into it. I mean, well, how, how do we get started? Yeah. Should we um, talk about that? If we just quickly? Yeah. Uh, if someone wanted yeah. to. Yeah. So the, the, the first step, interestingly enough, the first step is you can, using the .NET CLI or using Visual Studio, you can create a web API project and it actually is starts you off in a pretty good place. And then from there, you can add in some steel-toe packages because when you create that web API project, that's actually going to create a proper API for you with RESTful endpoints and, and get you going pretty quickly. You can then go add in some steel-toe stuff, right? The, the kind of, mm. I need health, I need distributed tracing, I need health, I need some good logging, you know, that kind of stuff. You could add those packages into that application. And you're, you're, you're on your way. And it just, you know, you just keep adding and adding and adding databases and connections to other services and stuff like that from there. And should you compile it into a Docker container first but, oh, to see it working? Actually, so, so yet another discussion point is what you would call parity between environments, right? It's part of the 12 factors. So parity between environments, because now you're in this container cloud world. And you have all these services around your application. And to even run your application, these services have to be up and going. So how do I do this locally for that? And so that's a whole other subject, doing local development and all that. But actually, your application, I would say, you use your local Docker instance and something like Project Tie that Microsoft is working on. That's a really cool thing, what they're doing to help you spin up all of these services, Docker Compose, you know, something like that, to spin up all these services, Microsoft SQL database, a, a message bus, whatever, spin it up locally, and then run your application right out of Visual Studio, like you normally do. And then, you know, from there, as you get into the container side of it, you're going to have to write a Docker file, you know, you are going to containerize and send it out. So there is going to be a bit of a, you know, transition period there for it. But really locally, like developing locally, I, I like to work as much out of Visual Studio as I can to stay as close to the code as I can before I really have to containerize my app and continue on down the line. Cool. Thank you. Yep. 
Project Thai? Is that T-I-E or? Uh, T-Y-E. T-Y-E, okay. Yeah, Project Thai, it's, it's a fairly new one, but one that I think is very becoming very popular in the .NET community. And it's all about being able to develop locally and keep as much parity with your local environment as your production environment. Because as that relationship degrades, right, that, that if you're not keeping your local environment and your production environment as much on par as possible, as that degrades, your publishing to production as your application goes to production becomes a bigger and bigger event. And that sucks, right? That's Saturday at 2 a.m. Everybody's on hands. You know, it's those stupid things. It's like, that should not be a thing anymore. And with microservices and all that, you should be able to deploy this thing because your testing is so good because you're, you know, everything is just so resilient around it. You should be able to do this in the middle of the afternoon is your, I guess, your goal with anything. So anyway, that, yeah, that parity between environments, that's a big deal. And Project High really helps you out with that. Awesome, awesome. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. So uh, I think I'm going to move on to picks now. Why? What's your pick for this week? Yeah, so learning a like second language, like the hardest thing for me is often like trying to find someone to actually practice speaking and listening and to that language. So um, I actually found an app that's called Tandem, and it's it's just a, like a big community that allows you to find people that speak Chinese or Spanish or whatever you're learning, and, and essentially just you know you can teach them English and just do a bit of a language exchange. So I've just been using that, and I found it pretty useful. So I thought I'd, that'd be my pick for, for this week. All right, cool. Okay, so my pick this week is going to be a video game, even though I don't often pick video games. It's Doom Eternal. It's really cool. They just put out a demo on one of the the latest NVIDIA video cards. And, you know, I remember playing Doom back when it first came out, the original Doom game, and then Doom 2. So, you know, again, I'm revealing my age, and I'm not too... (laughs) too bad at doing that. I've done that so many times in the show. But uh, so... If you like video games, you like shoot 'em up, first player type of thing, definitely check out Doom Eternal. So, David, have you given some thought on what your pick should be for our listeners this week? I have, but can we, for a moment, can we visit the whole Doom thing? Because, yeah. Like, oh yeah. As I, you know, when I when I made my move to to San Diego and I got my, I guess my first legitimate programming job out there, like Doom was a big deal, right? PC Doom. We built a map of our our office floor. It was a you know pretty big building, and we had the floor. And of course, we had some special things in the CEO's office. But we built a map of our of our floor, and like basically every evening, it was on. Everybody shut off, you know, IDEs and all that stuff, and it was like full on hours of doom. That's awesome. <laughs> Very cool. So, what did you come up with for a pick? Uh, so my pick. Unfortunately, I'm, I just don't have as expanded as horizons as you guys because I, I just love technology. Is actually identity server. I've been spending just in my free time a lot of time learning about identity server and the the differences of 
authentication versus authorization and like just what that relationship is and breaking them apart in a container world and an API world, API gateways, like this is a, this is a big deal. And it really got my attention the past few days, learning it, getting into it, just, you know, making it really cool. Very cool. So you, you were talking about Jets earlier. I thought maybe you might have wanted to pick the, the new Microsoft Flight Simulator. <laughs> have you tried that out? So, dude, I, I, I haven't had a video game on my, uh, on my PC in a really long time. I'm just boring like that. But the, the, actually, I've, I've seen uh, just in all the blogs and everything that I follow, I've seen a lot of screenshots and you know, headlines and things like that about what Simulator is. And man, it really got my attention because that looks pretty darn cool being able to go up and fly, you know, like full on fly at that resolution, a Cessna or something like that, man, that, that might be my pick in just a couple of weeks. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Yeah. I, I, I haven't tried it yet, but it definitely, you know, just, it looks so cool, you know, being to start yeah. wherever you want, fly wherever you want with all the detail they've got in there compared to how it originally came out with just, you know, basically black and white lines on a screen. So if you could put like, which I, I don't you may be able to do this, I don't know, but if you could stick like an F-14 or an F-15, you know, or a Raptor or something like that and fly that around LAX, that'd be pretty awesome too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. So if people have questions about Steel Toe or microservices, is there some way they can reach out and get in touch with you? Sure. I'm definitely on uh, most of the platforms. My personal site is uh, dirf.net. Uh, That's D I E R U F.net. On GitHub, it's ddiruf. And then uh, I'm, I really kind of am on their way too much. On Twitter, my handle is David. So any one of those is all going to lead you to the right place. Awesome. Awesome. And if our listeners want to reach out and get tortured to the show, give us suggestions. We'd love to hear from you. They can reach out to me on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. Da, da, da. Nice. <laughs> All right. Thanks, David, for your time today. I, I think it was a really good help for a lot of people that might have had some confusion about microservices and how to set them up and maybe even how to, to move from a monolith to a microservice. So mm -hmm. re really appreciate it. Thank why, Sean. Thank you very much for the time. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, I learned a lot. So. Thank you. Awesome. <laughs> All right, great. And we'll catch everybody else on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.